You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday, the 8th of June. It's a rather overcast day now here in TW11. Disappointing. It all started so well. How many times have we said that on this podcast? Lots to enjoy through the next half an hour or so. But as I welcome in today's guest, Lydia Hislop, those of you who are of really sharp mind will remember that the 8th of June is ringed in your diary as the date on which the executive committee meets to discuss and perhaps adjudicate on whether 300 races are going to be cut from the bloated, or is it, British fixture list. Um, Lydia, if, if anyone has got that date ringed in their diary, they need to get a life. But even so, it's very important. It, it is very important. So today, the executive committee of the BHA is going to vote on whether to endorse a reduction in race volume in line with the BHA's proposal. And it's not a how or a which races, as I understand it. It's just a commitment to the principle of that. And the three people who have a vote on the executive committee are Julie Harrington, the chief executive of the British Horse Racing Authority, David Armstrong, the chief executive of the Racecourse Association, and Charlie Liverton, who's the chief executive of the ROA, but he is representing the thoroughbred group, uh, by which we mean the NTF, National Trainers Federation, the Professional Jockeys Association, um, the Stable Staff Association, NARS, the Thoroughbred, the, the um, Thoroughbred Breeders Association, and also the ROA. So there's three votes there. And I think for it to be decided today, that would have to be a 3-0 clear victory. Um, but I think on everything that we know in terms of public proclamations, I would be expecting it to be a 2-1 majority vote in favour of the BHA proposal, assuming that the BHA, Julie Harrington, uh, votes for their, her own proposal. Um, you would also be expecting Charlie Liverson, I think, to vote in favour of it. I'm not saying that all of his members would necessarily be in favour mm. of it, but in terms of public pronouncements, I would say that the NTF are clearly in favour, the PJA are clearly in favour. I would expect NARS to be in favour, I don't know what the TBA thinks, um, but I would expect the ROA perhaps not to be in favour. But again, if we're doing it democratically, you would expect Charlie Liverton to have to vote in favour of the BHA's proposal, I think, to what, what I think would reflect the majority of his members' view. And I would expect David Armstrong to vote against it. Yeah, although we ought to point out that whilst there are divisions within the thoroughbred group, so the Racehorse Owners Association may not be entirely in line with the national trainers the pja nars and therefore charlie liverton would have to vote with the majority it could equally be that david armstrong's in an awkward position because there's a mini division there between arc and some of the one or two of the independents and then the jockey club and one or two other independents like york for example so it may not be quite so straightforward for armstrong but i see what you're saying that a that a 2-1 outcome is is perhaps the likeliest. I... If, if it was if it was three <laughs> nil, I think it would be decided today. I think actually it will be the board 
and therefore the independent non-executive directors who actually have the power here, who actually will decide one way or another. And it will be a real test of the metal of those members of the board. On um, the BHA uh, board, you've got the uh, member nominated, nominated directors, which include David Armstrong, but also um, Charlie Parker, who's the president of the ROA, Wilf Walsh, who is the, chief, uh, the chairman of the RCA. You would expect the three of them to be against this proposal from everything we know, I think. Luca Kamani, of course, is a member nominated director, the um, brilliant former trainer. Um, and then you have the non-executive directors who are David Jones, Laura White and Raj Parker. And of course you have Joe Somer-Smith himself, the, the incoming chair, and Julie Harrington, the chief executive. And this is where I really want the BHA to lead. And I have to say, uh, your interview with Joe Somer-Smith last week concerned me that they wouldn't be doing so. In what respect? Well, you asked him the question about uh, how the sport um, could look better in 10 years' time. And Joe Semmer-Smith said, it's not for me to decide. He suggested that it should be for the participants and the race courses to decide what the sport looks like in 10 years' time. And I'm, I'm sorry, but we don't have a bipartite um, arrangement for this sport. We have a tripartite arrangement. And that requires the BHA not just being a referee or a silent partner. It's about them um, have, setting ideals, setting principles, having an ideological uh, part to play in what horse racing looks like in 10 years' time. Um, it's been too passive now for so many years. And even on this, this point, you know, it's put forward this proposal. But where has been the campaigning to win hearts and minds for the reasons behind this proposal and to actually uh, convey to the industry and to key opinion formers, opinion leaders within the industry, the detailed work that they've put in to come to this position and why they feel it's necessary, why they think it might, yes, result in some short-term commercial negatives, but it is for the sake of the long, medium to long-term, three years plus time, that they think that these strategic um, cutbacks at this point are actually um, supported by evidence and why they think they are a good idea. I just haven't seen that. All right. Well, here's an observation for you. Paul Johnson used to be at the BHA and he is now uh, the chief executive of the National Trainers Federation. He has articulated, m mildly but firmly articulated his case or his, his body's case. Uh, anyone at the BHA in a similar position feel at liberty or sufficiently emboldened to do the same? Answer, no. Does that say something about... Um, how hidebound they feel by their stakeholders. Yes, I think it does. I think it does. And I think for um, their stakeholders to pretend otherwise is, 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 is just not credible, I'm afraid. Um, and, I, you know, it, at some point it comes back to the BHA. They have to stand up and be counted and say, you know, this is what I believe in and this is why. Um, because we racing fans rely on them to do that you know they they are they, they and, and the horsemen in many ways should be ideologically aligned in terms of you know what good is what is good for horse racing is good for the participants in the long term um the race courses have um shorter term ambitions in terms of their own bottom lines in terms of pot potentially people's bonuses and you know are the people making decisions right now really thinking that they're going to be around in 10 years time well i hope to be around in 10 years time as a fan of the sport and i want it to be in a really good shape and that's why I'm speaking as I am. Wilf Walsh was interviewed um, on the, the Sunday debate on Sky Sports Racing on uh, Sunday. And uh, he was talking about how when he goes to the BHA 
board meetings that he is there as a BHA person and not as an RCA person. Well, I'm afraid the track record of of that, you know, and just the way we understand the industry, any you know anybody who knows the industry knows that what what it what it suffers from is a lack of collective committee responsibility and a fallback to partisan positions. So again, I, d I just don't find that credible, I'm afraid. Um, and he also mentioned how. Um, uh, Matt Chapman said that he'd, he'd heard it all before. Yeah, when, when the BHA put out that press release uh, last week to announce Joe Samuel Smith and they were going to have a, a strategy, it made me think of this song and it clearly made uh, Matt Chapman think of it as well. That, of course, is who, Nick? That's I've heard it all before. <laughs> by Sunshine Anderson, as I think all of our viewers will know. And um, that's what I immediately thought of when I heard the, uh, when I read the press release. Um, Wilf Walsh was talking uh, on that day that, you know, that we should all give them a break because everybody's very new. And he cited all the people who were, were new. Um, now, he has only been in the job for eight months, so absolutely fair enough. But he, he referred to Julie Harrington, who's been in for 17 months. He referred to the chair of the Thoroughbred Group, Charlie Parker, who's been in for almost two years in his position. And he also referred to the new, new BHA direct, BHA chair, who obviously is new as chair, but has been a director of the BHA since 2014. And his term is set to finish in 2023, uh, provided uh, there aren't, isn't any fancy footwork to change the articles of the BHA to allow that to be extended, which by the way, I think would be a very bad thing, bearing in mind that Joe Samuel Smith was put, was anointed as inter, interim chair rather than going through any kind of external or transparent process. So I would urge the industry not to do something like that. Um, but my point is that uh, I, I feel that, that racing is, is everything that Joe Samuel Smith suggested to me, that we're still locked into a, a, a position whereby the BHA are just down to, to take a back seat. Well, whilst in this country we are preoccupied, and, and rightly so, with how to make a little go a very long way, the opposite could be said of what's happening in Victoria at present, because the VRC has just announced a massive prize money injection uh, to their Champion Stakes Day as part of their Spring Carnival. Lee Jordan, who is the Executive General Manager Racing for the VRC, has been explaining a bit more to me. Yeah, Nick, it's uh, pretty exciting for us. We, um, uh, the whole industry announced a $26 million increase in prize money, but down at Flemington, we're pleased to announce an increase of $5.2 million in prize money for the season. Uh, a lot of it is to do with the Melbourne Cup Carnival. And one of the exciting initiatives is now the creation of uh, VRC Champion Stakes Day, uh, which is on the last day of the carnival on the Saturday and we'll be conducting three $3 million Group 1 events. So we'll have a, a $3 million Group 1 Dali Champion Sprint, over 1,200, a $3 million Group 1 Candies Champion Mile, over, over a mile, of course, and the $3 million Group 1 VRC Champion Stakes, over 2,000 metres. So uh, the total race day will now be over $10 million. Uh, our strategy really is to grow the Melbourne Cup Carnival over those four days. So we start off with Derby Day on the Saturday, we have Cup on the Tuesday, Oaks Day on the Thursday, and now VRC Champion Stakes Day. So it's all about elevating the, the four days of the carnival, and we're, we're pretty excited. Our vision on this is to package it up so it really is very easy for internationals to come in on that second shipment, and they could bring horses for the Melbourne Cup. 
and also bring horses for these three Group 1 races, the Sprint, the Mile and the 2000 metres. They're all wait-for-age races, and that would be ideal. I mean, the feedback I've had over years is I think internationals prefer to come in as close as they can to the race, compete in the race, and then be able to, to, to move on. Either they can go back to Europe or they can go on to Hong Kong and Japan. But that is the vision to, to package this up and make it attractive for the European horses to come here. And would they have to pass the same sort of uh, tests that we've been discussing quite a bit and debating on the podcast the last couple of years that you have to now in the Cup? And I know those were revised earlier this year. Yeah, any horse coming down for any of the Spring Carnival, you do have to go through the veterinary requirements. But, but as you said, they have been, after the first year, revised and, um, and some changes already, which hopefully will make it a bit easier. And I know that uh, Racing Victoria, the regulatory body, and the veterinary um, staff there will obviously keep monitoring it. And obviously we, we do want to have a safe cut, but we also want to make it uh, a bit easier for internationals to come here. And Lee, uh, just, just as, as far as the, this huge prize money injection is concerned, uh, people across the globe will be thinking, well, yeah, this is great, but, but how? how? How are you in a position whereby you're able to do this? What's, what's underpinning this? Yeah, it, it is staggering, isn't it, Nick? I mean, uh, we're chatting before. Uh, the total prize money now just in the state of uh, Victoria now is uh, $300 million Australian dollars uh, for the season. So it's, you know... 150 million pounds just for just for Victoria, um, and we conduct about say 400 meetings. There's about 120 metropolitan meetings there. It's it, a lot to do with just our wagering turnover through COVID. It'd be it'd be fair to say before COVID, our turnover was sort of levelled out, even a bit of a decline. But once COVID hit, everyone um, only sport that was that kept going was horse racing, and wagering went up considerably and. Since COVID, we're through COVID, I think we expected um, wagering to, to level out, even decrease, but no, it's kept increasing. Um, it's it's up. I mean, we had a meeting at Flemington just recently and we were 20% up on wagering turnover year on year, which is phenomenal. So uh, one good thing for the sport is the people that have been punting during the COVID period and watching it have, have remained with the sport, which is, which is really good. An interesting part, I listen to your podcast regularly, Nick, I'm a fan, but and hearing, we've probably got the same issue here in that um, crowds aren't coming back. I mean, they're wagering, um, but crowds are an issue and uh, we'll definitely be tested over the carnival uh, when we hit, you know, September, October, November. But at the moment, yeah, crowds aren't, crowds aren't there, but wagering definitely is. And that's, that's our biggest funding arm and that's why we've been able to increase prize money and have the levels we have. Lee Jordan there from the Victoria Racing Club. Uh, we know how successful Australian racing is relative to other jurisdictions in the world. I'm sure it is not perfect, but you know, no country is. Just to give you a bit of context, though, that's £150 million, roughly, just taking the exchange rate, $300 million dollars, um, just for Melbourne, just for Melbourne alone next season. Uh, £150 million was the exact amount of total prize money in the whole of Great Britain in 2021. Uh, and 2018 was the record at 166, and it's forecast to be 170 in 2022. It's kind of a sobering thought, really, Lydia, isn't it? It, it, it very much is. It, it very much is, and it only, we can only look on in envy with that. Um, Racing Victoria has a minimum bet limit, doesn't it? It has a policy on that? 
yeah and 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 also the uh, levy well the levy equivalent uh, there are individual agreements that are, that are that are made between bookmakers and the and the individual states but the the broad equivalent of the levy agreement um guarantees the state regulatory body incidentally in, interestingly the state regulatory body 3% uh on on bookmakers turnover it's not a gross profit it's 3% of bookmakers turnover that's mm. that's huge Mm, absolutely it, it, it is massive I mean, add that to a robust pari mutual system and you're in <laughs> you're in pretty good shape you very much are you very much are but i mean you know i would just highlight that we're, we're told that um, a minimum bet law wouldn't couldn't be profitable for bookmakers over in britain and yet they, that doesn't seem to be true when you look at um, australian racing so you know i think we, we can we can do a better job all, all round in terms of structuring and also uh, being fairer now, we've not given much play on this podcast so far to Royal Ascot two-year-olds. Yes, you've all heard about the Wesley Ward horses, but what about the domestic challenge? Well, Ammo Racing will numerically be the most powerful owners. Of that, there's relatively little doubt. Uh, Kia Jarobchen's huge operation. Uh, Emily Scott is racing manager to Ammo Racing. She very kindly gave me a little bit of her time a little earlier on, and I began by asking her just to outline the sheer scale of Ammo Racing in 2022. So um, we've obviously spread into into Ireland this year for the first time. So um, including those numbers, we've got um, about 75, 80 horses um, in England and Ireland. And then we've got a few in training in America as well. So um, all in all with horses in training, it's sort of creeping up towards the 100 mark um, this year, which is, you know, a big increase on last year. I think there are about 75 in total last year. Um it's um it's ever increasing and you know the quality i think is is increasing at the same time which is good to see and although you've got good older horses is it fair to say that really the thrust of keir jarobchen's operation is two-year-olds um i think that's definitely fair to say and you know i think um the activity of of um of our operation at the breeze up sales is is um an example of that you know buying two of the top lots at the craven sale um horses which have gone on to run very well so um, yeah, I'd say the the excitement that the um, that that Kia gets from the two-year-olds um, showing themselves to be you know good prospects is is um, not to be underestimated. So Emily, let's spin through some of these Royal Ascot two-year-olds. Then, who are you most looking forward to? So Persian Force, who we've obviously seen twice. Um, he's won won the Brocklesby and then he won a conditions race at Newbury on Lockinge Day. He he definitely heads there. Likely to go for the Coventry at this stage. Um, and then there's a, a nice Kodiak Colt who again has run twice. He was second in a very good race at Ascot, and then he he followed that up at York by winning very impressively. Um, he's called Wallbank. Um, he he will probably go to the Norfolk. He's got a lot of natural speed. And then we've got a lovely filly called Queen Ollie, who's a no no never filly, um, also trained by Dave Lockman. She's likely to go for the Albany. Um, She's only run once. We've only seen her once. She was out at York and she won really nicely there. She's, you know, she's out of a Galileo mare. She's got a lovely length of stride to her and I think um, a lot of class too. So obviously she'll go there with a bit less experience, but we've always liked her since day one. Really. And then we've got um, a sort of a handful of fillies that are earmarked for the Queen Mary. But again, some of those might go Windsor Castle route instead um, rather than all our darts in one race a nice kodiak filly called olivia Meralda, who's actually not won she's finished second twice um she was a, sh- uh, a half a length second at the car on her debut in a nice race 
Um, and then she was behind statuette of, of Coolmore's on her second start at Navin. So um, we, we, we hold her in high regard. And I think she's bumped into bumped into a very smart filly of Aidan O'Brien's, um, you know, on her second start. And um, the trainer holds holds her in high regard, Michael O'Callaghan. So she, she's likely to go for the, the Queen Mary. Um, she did the fastest time at the Craven. So she's got a lot of natural speed. Um, and, you know, she's got some, some fighting experience now, having run twice. So she's an exciting filly. And then um, we've got a, a lovely Camacho filly with Richard Hughes um, that won at Chelmsford, looking very speedy and very classy. Um, and I think, you know, probably go there, uh, probably go to the Queen Mary. Um, Richard said she's come on for her run at Chelmsford. So that's that's exciting. Um, Ross got a real feel from her that day. Um, and I think, you know, she she done not not an awful lot at home enough to get to the races, but I think there's a lot more to come from her. Um, and then there's a nice Tazleet filly that won at Ascot called Omni Queen, um, another Dave Lockman horse. And there's a, a very smart filly that that probably slightly disappointed on on the face of it in the Mary Gate at York called Miami Girl. She's a Kotai Glory filly of Richard Hannon. She won first time out at Newmarket, looking pretty impressive. And then we backed her up quite quickly in the Mary Gate and. Um, it probably came a little too soon for her and, and she sort of slightly boiled over a bit at York. Um, but she's been working really well since and has a lot of natural speed and sort of she's penciling for the Queen Mary too. But again, could be one that could switch to the Windsor Castle. If yeah, I've, we want. I've, only count, I've only counted four for the Queen Mary so far. I think you need to find <laughs> a few more. Do you have one of these horses this year that you've got a particular soft spot for? I'm not asking you if you're necessarily your best bet, but if there was one that you'll be cheering more loudly for than all the others at Ascot, which which would it be? Well, it's an interesting question actually, because last year the the most the most nervous I was last year at Ascot was for Go Bears Go because I had the high expectation highest expectations of him, and he obviously was the closest to winning. Um, so I think I'll be able to answer that question when I'm standing in the paddock and I feel the nerves because the expectation will be there. Um, but if you had to really ask me that, put a gun to my head and say which one, it would probably be between two, um, and it would be Persian Force and Queen Ollie, um, Persian Force and the Coventry and Queen Ollie in the Albany. But Persian Force, I, I don't think we really know what's under the bonnet yet. Um, well, obviously we've seen him twice, but he's done it so easily. Um, I think he would be the one that... And Richard's obviously not been um, shy about saying how much he likes him as well. So um, if, he, if he is as good as Richard thinks and he can really see out that stiff six, um, I think he's you know, he's going to run a huge race. Um, Emily, thanks so much. This has been incredibly instructive. I, I feel so much better informed now and I'm sure everybody else does. Good luck to you and to, to Kia and all your team for Ascot next week. We'll see you there. Great. Thank you so much, Nick. Emily Scott there, a racing manager to Ammo Racing, rattling off a whole glut of horses that might turn up at Royal, probably will turn up at, at Royal Ascot next week. I'm grateful to her, her for that. That's a lot of horses to keep your eyes on. Lydia, um, I know two-year-olds is not your thing <laughs> generally, but the races next week are going to be good and, and not just for the international interest. It does tend to be when I start really paying attention to two-year-old racing in um, traditionally in, in, in Britain is the, the Royal Meeting. I have to say there's been a few that have actually caught my imagination already this season. So um, I really liked uh, when Paradress beat Yarsat at Newmarket in the Craven meeting. And Yarsat's gone on to finish second to her stable companion, Pillow Talk, 
in the Mary Gate. I think Pillow Talk was very good. I thought Power Dress was very good to beat Yarsat, and uh, uh, she hasn't run since for Richard Hannon. And so you would think she'd probably go for the Albany because she was so particularly strong and did well to run down Yarsat in the final furlong, over five furlongs at Newmarket. She's got an entry at the Curra at the end of June. I would hope that she would turn up at Royal Ascot. Uh, but the horse, uh, and then there's also this Queen Ollie, who we, we've just heard about. I thought she was really impressive at York. And Dave Lothnane, who trains her, who's got, who's very long suited in this area. I mean, he's got Omni Queen as well, and he's got Wall Bank. But he was particularly, in terms of the fillies, he was particularly warm about the ability of Queen Ollie and I think we saw that at York and then the other one I mean the horse that's really caught my imagination is Noble Style uh, for Charlie Appleby and this horse uh, ran um, at Ascot over five furlongs on Cigaro Stakes Day and he beat Wallbank and he was just really impressive it's the way that he just put the race to bed spoke to me of being absolutely a top class horse and I think he's the best two-year-old I've seen this season and probably by some some um margin i mean clearly obviously over in ireland aiden o'brien's got the winner of the marble hill black beard and he'll have others as well i mean the filly who's closely related to tenebrism statuette but for me the horse that's most excited me so far is noble style yeah and that would be a feather in the cap for andrew black's excellent breeding operation at chase Moor farm which has already produced a couple of royal ascot horses from this family very much so, um, because that, that's um, the Eartha Kitt pedigree, isn't it? And the Ceiling Kitty, um, the Queen Mary winner. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really strong um, dam side. And it just speaks of speed and it also speaks of precocity. But there's also Kingman there as well. So there might be uh, a more lasting uh, career to come from, from Noble Style as well. Right, more Ascot chat in a moment. But first of all, we're off to Hong Kong and the croc. Nick, more disappointing news for Aussie jockey Blake Shin, I'm afraid. He's got COVID. Shin is the jockey who waved the white flag a few weeks ago, saying he was bailing out at the end of the season, despite riding better than he ever has in Hong Kong and having worked out Hong Kong's idiosyncrasies and mastered the system. He cited mental health issues. The isolation in the racing bubble was getting to him. It's another blow for Blake, but full credit to him for taking the steps he has. He'll be much missed, and he'll be in demand when he returns to his native Australia. It's surprising more licensees in Hong Kong haven't contracted COVID. Victor Wong is the only other jockey to have succumbed to it. So, no Blake Shin and Happy Valley for the nine-race car today, but we will see Lyle Hewitson, the triple South African champion, take another step close to the upper rungs of the jockey ranks. Lyle is only 24. He's a real talent, this rider. He failed in his first attempt in Hong Kong, but he took himself off to Japan, learnt a lot there, then he went back to South Africa, where he picked up a third title, and, and then he returned to Hong Kong. He's on fire at present. He's ridden 12 winners at the last 10 meetings, and I think he can continue the good run at Happy Valley today with Big Two in race six. Big Two is trained by Douglas White, who's taken Hewitson under his wing. No better man to have on your side than 13 times champion jockey in Hong Kong, now successful trainer, Dougie White. Big Two is a maiden. Uh, he's naught from nine. He's a five-year-old Irish gelding by Dandyman. 
But he shows a lot of talent, this fellow, and I think that he's going to go very close in this Class 4 handicap over the extended mile. I see number 5, Reach Goal, as his danger, and also number 7, Dragon Pride. So in race 6, number 4, Big 2, take him in a tote swinger with 5, Reach Goal, and 7, Dragon Pride. Lyle Hewitson's got another chance later on. He's got race eight, number nine, Exponential. And in race uh, number, uh, the finale, he's got race seven, uh, Valiant Elegance, who's another Dougie White trained horse, has got a big chance. But Drops of God might be the answer there. So race nine, number one, Drops of God, Joe Marrera to beat seven, Valiant Elegance. That's all on the Hong Kong beat this week. We'll have more for you probably in two weeks because Royal Ascot, there'll be no midweek meeting at Happy Valley. So they skip a week and we'll be back in two weeks' time. Well, one man riding today at Happy Valley is uh, Harry Bentley. He's uh, he's with me now. Time to check in with the former British-based jockey uh, because last time we spoke, Harry, I think you might have had a winner or two. You've now racked up how many in Hong Kong? Uh, I'm on 23 now for the season, um, which I'm, I'm pretty pleased with, to be honest. For my first full season, um, it's not a bad number. And how's the how's the sort of day to day life going? Because it was pretty tough for you in the in the early stages. You go there in the middle of a in the middle of a lockdown, and you said, "Well, I'll get I get my head down and get on with it." How's it been the last couple of months? Yeah, it's definitely improving a bit. I mean, things are still very tough with um, restrictions. They're, they're extremely cautious, I should say, out here, and uh, we're still full face masks everywhere. Um, so. It, you know, it's it's certainly not as open as as what you're having back home, uh, unfortunately. But I feel like we're starting to head in the right direction, and restaurants are opening, and we're allowed to go now. So it's it, it's getting there slowly but surely. And and one of the good things is that I will actually be able to return home at the end of the season, just for a couple of weeks to have a bit of a break. So we're getting there. Okay. Will you ride back in the UK when you come back? Uh, I, I don't think so. I'm only going to be at home for about four weeks because um, I still have to do a quarantine on return here. So I think for the sake of it, I think I'll just enjoy my time off and um, have a proper reset. And, and are you still comfortable that this was the this was the right decision to take for your for your career? Is it working for you professionally speaking? Yeah, I think it is. It's um, it, it's certainly a steep learning curve, as I said to you last time. There's there's a lot that you have to um accept and and work around straight away so i i'm i'm definitely learning still and enjoying the experience and i I think it is the right thing to have done for my career at this stage um i'm still um in my very late 20 i should i was going to say i'm in my late 20s i'm I'm 30 next week so um i don't think i'd get well come on make them listen make the most of it while you can i say you're in your late 20s yeah, I'm in my 20s still, <laughs> which, um, yeah, I won't be able to say next week. But um, I think it's I think it's a good move still and um, still leaves me with plenty of options in the future. All right. Are you going to have a winner tonight? I hope so. I've, I've only got three rides, but I, I like them, to be honest. My best being Smart Idea in the last race. He's won, well, I've won on him four times this season, which is no mean feat here in Hong Kong, uh, with the handicap of being quite harsh on them. Um, he's extremely consistent. We've got a good draw, which is key over 1,200 metres at Happy Valley. So it leaves him with a really good chance. Uh, we've had a lot of rain in the last 24 hours and it continues to pour. So he, he's won on yielding ground. Um, so he's got a great chance. 
Harry Bentley there. Now, just before Lydia joins me, I'm going to squeeze Huey Morrison into the show because he's on his gallops now and he's watching Quickthorn, who won the Henry II Stakes at Sandown the other day. He wasn't in the Ascot Gold Cup and there was talk that he might be supplemented. But Huey, you're watching him now. You've decided not to do that. No, I, th- I think he's uh, he's had three runs this winter, this spring, summer, early summer, and he had a he had a proper hard race the other day. You were you wouldn't obviously notice it, but uh, Tom who rides him every day has very much said to me he feels he feels a bit quiet this week. So uh, you know it's it's uh, it might have been a good decision that we didn't put him in in the end. Now, I was trying to persuade you after the race at Newbury to, to supplement Stay Alert for the Oaks, having finished second to the subsequent Oaks third, Nashua. You're, you're much more sensible than, than I am, obviously, but um, it's your job to be to be sensible and find the right spots for your horse. You go back to Newbury with her tomorrow. Uh, how do you think she'll get on? I, you know, I, I hope the, the slightly easier ground when she ran on last time will suit her. I, I wouldn't have, they only had one mill last night, I, I, did we? But I, I'd like, you know, it's on the slow side that helped. I'd love to have been soft. Uh, you know, on the form book, the basic form book, the, um, the William Haggis horse should be just 10 lengths, I think. So um, having over the years sometimes been a, not the most competitive listed race, it's looking pretty competitive on the, on the face of it. Do you think she's pretty good? Do you think she's up to, up to winning a stakes race this year? Uh, I think she certainly deserves, she's got the class to win a stakes race. I think, you know, she was still learning the other day. Um, I think if it had been a mile and a half, I think Nash would have been, could have been in trouble. But obviously, um, I think the proved Nash was third in the Oaks slightly proved the point. We were, at best, we would have finished fourth. Um, and on a course, I don't think she's mature enough to cope with at the moment. How many runners do you think you'll have at Ascot next week? Well, we got sort of penciled in sort of one a day, but there's uh, I think there's a lot of um, uh, there's lots of things to happen in relating to the uh, um, ground and whether we get into races. Really, okay. Any any ones that you're particularly keen to to make sure they get there that you've got absolutely in peak condition? Um, funny enough, I'd love not so sleepy to get into the uh, what's it called the copper copper bottom. I want to call it. It's not the copper horse. <laughs> the copper horse uh, handicap. Yeah. Uh, over <laughs> on heavy ground, um, and and we're looking forward to running Maxed. I think in the mile and a quarter group three on the Thursday. That's the two I'm looking forward to. All right, that was Huey Morrison. Lydia is still with me. Thanks to all my guests today. Uh, she's nice filly, I think. Stay alert. She runs tomorrow. Totally agree. I think she's going to be better over further, though. I'm really excited about the return of Golden Lyra. I was only looking up her profile last week and worrying about where she was, because at that stage she hasn't got an, hadn't got an entry. She was the filly who won at Newmarket last, last October by, by five lengths with Nashua, the subsequent Oaks, a third, back in third, the beaten favourite on that day. She was really hugely impressive. Uh, she's a daughter of Lope de Vega. She's uh, from the family of See the Moon and Samum and Schiaparelli. Um, and she looked as though she would really come into her own over middle distance as a three-year-old. I was worried, oh no, she's gone missing. But hurrah, she is going to be running in the Abingdon Stakes. And I think that that looks like a cracker. Excellent. And you're going to provide me with a winner for today or tomorrow? Tomorrow it is, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to go to the 4.35 at Nottingham tomorrow, Thursday, Nick. And that is a horse that I've been waiting for to step up to 10 furlongs or further, but 10 furlongs will do. And that is Elena's Gift. Elena's Gift for Hector Crouch and Rafe Beckett running in the 4.35 at Nottingham on Thursday, June the 9th. Excellent. And if she wins, you can be my guest at next year's Derby dinner. (laughs) 
well, you, you're, you're assuming that the, A, the rules will ch- have changed and B, that I would want to go. <laughs> that was Wednesday, June the 8th. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.